I think we ask a lot of priests. I think that it's unfair almost how much we ask for them to do, how many gifts we expect from them, right? I know people who do not have the charism of preaching, who nevertheless go in there week in and week out. And that's got to be very, very difficult and taxing. I know a lot of people who are not ordained or who had been ordained but left the priesthood who retain a charism of preaching. And I feel like the church misses out when those people are not allowed to reflect publicly on the scriptures. We don't know how many people out there have the charism of preaching until we start asking people who are not ordained to preach. And so why not try? We have nothing to lose from expanding the pool. That was theologian Natalia Imperatore Lee sharing her thoughts about how the Catholic Church can begin recognizing and expanding the charism of preaching beyond the priesthood. We'll hear more from her in a moment. But first, I wanted to encourage you to visit the Commonweal Magazine website, where you'll find a special package entitled The American Parish Today. It contains a number of articles from different writers seeking to reimagine a more hopeful future for Catholic parish life in the United States. And if you haven't done so already, I'll encourage you to download and listen to the first of these two special episodes. Today, we're speaking with three of our writers. In addition to Natalia, we're joined by Jason Steidel, who speaks about Out at St. Paul's in Manhattan, one of the country's leading LGBTQ ministries. And then, Commonweal Editor-at-Large, Molly Wilson O'Reilly, talks with us about what parishes should do to become more welcoming for families. Her suggestion is pretty simple. Pastors, keep your homilies short. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. So we began planning our special issue on the American parish today for one simple reason. We knew the parish was changing rapidly. We wanted to know how and why. Against the standard doom and gloom story that dominates most news coverage, we wanted to look for signs of hope. And we found them, especially in places like the American West and the South. We also surveyed our audience for what you look for in a parish. Is it a sense of home? Is it social justice ministries? Is it inspiring homilies? So we got the data, and I discussed the results of the survey with Commonweal's publisher, Tom Baker, and our marketing coordinator, Gabriella Wilkie. Take a listen. Tom, let me start with you, since you worked with uh, some folks on getting us some of the real concrete information that we are looking for to supplement this special issue. One of the things we wanted to do when we undertook this project was get a little bit beneath the surface of some of the parish statistics that everybody knows. When you look at parish statistics, the first thing that you see is the number of parishes is declining, the number of priests is declining, therefore the number of parishes who don't have priests or are closing is also going up. But one of the things we discovered pretty quickly on is that the story is a little more complex than that. There are a lot of geographical variations in the health and growth of parishes. And that's one of the things we wanted to dive a little more deeply into. We worked with our good friends at the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate based at Georgetown. They pointed out that uh, in a number of parts of the country, the number of parishes isn't shrinking. In fact, some dioceses face problems that the number of Catholics is growing so quickly that the parishes they have can't accommodate them. 
Was there anything else that came out of some of the research we did with Carrot or with other groups too? You hinted at it a moment ago and what you just explained about some of the regional shifts as well. Yes. One of the things that we learned from working with Kara was how dramatic the migration of Catholics throughout the United States has been over the past 60 or 70 years. Well over half of Catholics in the U.S. used to live in the East and the Midwest. And now really the proportions have flipped. And that proportion now lives primarily in the South and East. So that's where Catholics are now more likely to be than in some of the familiar Irish, Italian, and German strongholds of the past. In our issue, we have a, a graphic that really dramatically kind of illustrates that, just this shift westward and, and southward, and it's really kind of extraordinary. And I think, too, one of the other things that became plain, although I think many of our listeners already suspect this, is the growth as a representation of the, of the church of Hispanic Catholics. Right. If you look at the uh, racial and ethnic breakdown of Catholics in the U.S. now, 52% are white. And obviously, that percentage is declining very rapidly. And it's really just a matter of a few years before U.S. Catholicism will be a minority white denomination. And Gabrielle, I want to turn to you because we at Commonweal supplemented some of this concrete data with some more anecdotal information, interesting information from our readers. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think one of the great things of being part of the tradition of the little magazines is that our readers are really actively involved in special issues like we've done for the parish. So in preparation for this, we had sent out a survey to our readers who have a stake in what the parish life is. We basically gathered a sense of what people are seeing on the ground and especially kind of the the challenges that are facing parish life today. Our readers want to know what can be done about growing political divides or what's kind of pulling parishes apart. They're really concerned about accessibility or whether there's a sense of acceptance in the church for LGBT or the poor or children or other Latinos in the church. So it's really been great to hear from our readers as people who live in that experience every day. So Gabriella, I'm In that reader survey data that we collected, was there anything that jumped out at you or that you found surprising or especially interesting or just something that you might not have expected? I think one of the things that kind of jumped out at me is that as we're thinking about and really exploring what it means to be church, what it means to be a parish outside of those traditional parochial models, I guess I was taken aback by how many of our readers are already there in the sense that they are already looking for parish experiences outside of that kind of traditional one one parish and that they've either chosen a church that's not necessarily the closest one to them, but one where they feel more comfortable or at home in, or choosing to find church in a group that we wouldn't consider a parish, whether it's a Catholic worker house or at the local monastery or a group of lay people even who are kind of coming together to share in that community that people are looking for and already kind of seeking church within themselves instead of waiting for the local parish to to catch up to where they are. That's interesting. And I think that some of that is reflected in some of the pieces we've collected in our parish issue as well. So Tom and Gabriella, I just want to thank you for sharing that information with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So we all know what it's like to sit through an uninspired and uninspiring homily. But there are steps the parishes can take to relieve pastors of the burden of having to preach week after week with little support. 
Natalia Imperatori Lee, a professor of religious studies at Manhattan College, talks with me about how a return to storytelling and an expansion of the preaching charism beyond ordained ministers could help revitalize Catholic homilies. Natalia, thanks for being here. And I want you to sort of take the listeners through, if you don't mind, some of the points you raise about the experience you've had hearing homilies, like the rest of us, we often, I think, find ourselves sort of wishing for more or something else, certainly, and sort of how you bring your own teaching into thinking about the way you might want to hear a homily. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we've all heard our fair share of homilies that missed the mark. I think um Probably my family is a little more difficult in that regard because it's two theologians married to each other. So we're always armchair quarterbacking the homily. Eh, Would you really say that? Would you really think that? But at the same time, I think homilies are where most of our adult education in the faith happens. And so there's a lot of overlap between teaching and preaching. Not that it should be a lecture every time, nor could it, but that a lot of the things that you try to do to maintain an engaged classroom is what you're trying to do in a 10 or 12 minute engagement with your parishioners in the homily. So you have an objective, but you also want to draw people in. You want to make people feel seen and appreciated. You want to make people feel connected to you and to each other. You want to sort of create a community in that space. And that's something that I had to learn how to do in my years of teaching, because as we all know, people with doctorates are not taught how to teach. We're taught how to research. So we learn on the job how to teach. So that's one of those things that I sort of figured out how to do semester after semester with different groups of classes. And the things that I found were important were paying attention, especially to the room, paying attention to the audience. Sometimes students, you can have a great lesson plan. You can have a great idea for the day. You can have a fun exercise that you want everyone to take part in, but they'll come in having, you know, 10 of them just failed a test in their engineering class and there went your party. And so you need to be able to sort of react and be nimble in the moment and say, okay, well, why don't you bring me your concerns and we can work from there. So one of the things is really sort of developing a relationship with the community that you're trying to build. Another thing that I think is really important is, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, is narrative, is is storytelling. My students don't want to hear about principles of Vatican II. They want to hear you know, the nitty gritty little stories and the drama and, you know, this bishop was against that bishop and they circulated fake things. And, you know, that really draws them in and makes them ready to hear the larger principles. And I can use some of those stories to talk about different factions Mm -hmm. and different ideas and Mm -hmm. what wins out and what Mm -hmm. loses out and what Mm -hmm. that means. Natalia, let me just jump in there too, because, you know, we we do talk about narrative and that is a focus of of, of your book, uh, Quentime, a narrative in the ecclesial presence. And one of the things that I sort of appreciate or took great interest in reading this book, and this is something you've spoken about in various places as well, is not just narrative as you describe it, sort of historical or anecdotal or events, but personal narrative. And I find at least, and uh, you know, some people I speak with, they sort of appreciate when a homilist builds on or works in some sort of personal narrative to the homily because there's a real sort of, I think, connection that is developed. Is that something you sort of work on too, like even when you're doing sort of spiritual or theological reflections or teaching? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think, well, as a woman, I think it's important to to draw on personal narrative because a lot of people don't hear, especially in spiritual reflection. The times that I've 
given sort of scriptural reflections in liturgical settings, I will tend to draw on my personal experience because people don't normally hear women's experience from the pulpit. So I think it's kind of important. But I think in every case, engaging your own particularity is what draws people in or a particular story. So a good teachers that I know use biography, for example, either autobiography or the biography of a great saint or a great something to draw people in because people like to see themselves, we all do, like to see ourselves reflected in the particularity of someone else's story. I think that rather than trying to make and not even rather than, but the best way to make universal points is by digging deeper and deeper into our own particularities. When we try to be universal, we end up being general, and that ends up applying to nobody. Whereas when we really sort of start from our own experience, not that every homily should be like, well, last week I went to the grocery store. You don't want that every week, but you do want something that, that is authentic to your life that draws people in and people can say, oh, wow, I have also had a dark night of the soul and it feels good. It also humanizes the preacher, which I think is something that the whole church, that's a real sort of important catechetical moment, yeah. right? If Especially if you can admit moments of weakness, if you can admit moments of failure, if you can admit moments that you yelled at somebody when you shouldn't have, that really sort of, I think, draws people in. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, I sort of try to recall homilies that have really stayed with me. And there are some in particular, and one that I remember at a parish where uh, the priest spoke about his estrangement from his own mother. Oh, and this was on Mother's Day. Wow. Uh, but he he tied it into what was happening sort of in the gospel at that particular, you know, that particular morning. And it was just so moving and so revelatory. And it, it sort of really just, I think, had people mesmerized, I guess, or sort of just really, I don't know, there, there was something that felt like there was something at stake, but also sort of very personal. I think that's something that yeah. is really important. Well, and think about all the people in that room who are there on Mother's Day estranged from their own mothers, or who had difficult relationships, or who healed, or who lost their mothers that year. What an amazing sort of witness to all of our kind of frail humanity to say, this is a relationship in my life that I mourn, and I wish that I could do better, or, you know, not everybody has a perfect mom. We all have to sort of deal with the parents that we're given who are human beings. Like, Well, that's that, universal. That's right? the universal. That's the about. universal. Yeah. But we don't get to that by saying, some moms are good and some moms are bad. We get to it by saying, I remember when I used to talk to my mom, and it was really sort of toxic and Instead, we had to work out a different kind of relationship. You know, the, the, the opposite to that is, of course, and I've heard a number of these is on Mother's Day, love your mother. <laughs> right. Which I suppose we all should. But, we should. Know, but yeah, loving but... our mothers means very different things That's for all, each of us. Absolutely. You know, For some of us, it means convincing our mothers that they need help. For some of us, it means allowing our mothers to have different political views and not sort of getting into arguments with them. For some of us, it means fostering really robust relationships between our mothers and our children. It can mean all kinds of different things to love your mom. Yeah. Is there something, and you know, I, this is kind of a, you don't have to answer this, but is there a particular homily that you ever heard that stays with you or you were like, hey, this is a really good example of one or brought you back for more? Um, well, I, in graduate school, I remember there was a student, he was a, a scripture scholar, or well, he was going to be, I guess, a scripture scholar. He was a baby scripture scholar. And his whole thing was to always give one sentence homilies. This is totally contradicting everything that we've just said about narrative in particularity. But basically, it was a very, it may have been Matthew 25 that he was preaching on, or maybe it was a miracle story or something like that. And, and he just sort of closed, walked to the middle of the altar or the, the, the sort of the raised area, stared out the, the congregation with his little lav mic and said, 
go and do likewise. And he sat down. And so the majority of the homily was actually silence because everyone was kind of stunned. It just shook it up so much because we had been so used to, and I mean, most of us are so used to, well, you know, what Jesus means, and da, 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 da. and it was just a really kind of stark yeah. interruption. Sure. And, and it invites reflection there. It really as well, did. Once the stunned part is over. Sure. Yeah. Well, you kind of all sort of, there was a moment where you were stunned, and then a moment of like, wow, carrying that, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? And we were allowed to sort of step into that a little bit more. So that does stick with me a lot. I also had a really good preacher when I was in high school who used to tell parables and stories every time. And I think with high schoolers, especially, he was in charge of the youth group, that really worked. Yeah. You know, yeah. there once was a man who blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we got really, really into that. Yeah. So what, because this is something you also raise in your piece, what might be the role of lay people mm. in helping enrich homilies? Yeah. I think the point of me writing about that was, I think we ask a lot of priests. I think that it's unfair almost how much we ask for them to do, how many gifts we expect from them, right? Management and holiness and pastoral care, pastoral care mm -hmm. and preaching. And preaching is itself a charism, you know, it's biblical. And so I think I know people who do not have the charism of preaching, who nevertheless go in there week in and week out. And that's got to be very, very difficult and taxing. I know a lot of people who are not ordained or who had been ordained but left the priesthood who retain a charism of preaching. And I feel like the church misses out when those people are not allowed to reflect publicly on the scriptures. We don't know how many people out there have the charism of preaching until we start asking people who are not ordained to preach. And so, why not try? Yeah. We have nothing to lose from expanding the pool, not to create a new cast of like lay people who can preach or lay people who've had this many courses can preach. Like that's not what it is. What we're trying to do is cast a wider net in the hope of finding more people with this gift. A lot of people have a really good gift for it, but you won't know unless you start inviting them forward. Yeah. Yeah. Natalia Imperatory Lee, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. This is Tom Baker, Commonweal's publisher, and on behalf of all of us here, I'd like to thank the supporters who made our April Parish issue and these podcasts possible, the William E. Simon Foundation, and two funds created by donors to Commonweal, the John Garvey Fund and the Paul Saunders Fund for coverage of the church's future. If you'd like to support these podcasts and our other work with a contribution, we would be very grateful. Please visit commonwealmagazine.org slash donate. Thank you. Just after his election in 2013, Pope Francis made international headlines when a journalist asked him to comment on homosexuality. Who am I to judge, he said. Yet, even as more and more Catholics are comfortable with homosexuality as an expression of divine love, there remains in some quarters almost visceral opposition to anything that might suggest changes to church doctrine on sexuality. Still, some parishes on the ground have taken matters into their own hands ministering to LGBTQ Catholics despite the church's official designation of homosexuality as an intrinsically disordered orientation. Jason Steidel, a visiting professor of religious studies at St. Joseph's College in Brooklyn and Long Island, talks with associate editor Matthew Sittman about his experience with Out at St. Paul's in New York City.
Welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast, Jason. Thank you. I just wondered if you could describe Out at St. Paul's for our listeners. So Out at St. Paul's is the LGBTQ ministry of St. Paul the Apostle Parish in Manhattan. We're located on the northern edge of Hell's Kitchen, which is sort of New York's most prominent gayborhood. We're a community-based organization, so we have a lot of LGBTQ folks come in from the neighborhood, and we're a ministry. We reach out to those around us, and there are three main parts to what we do, service, spirituality, and community. Maybe you could talk about what kind of service do you do, for example? Sure. Um, So our main service project is serving dinner at GMHC, the Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was an organization established during the AIDS epidemic to serve folks living with HIV and AIDS. And Once a month, a group of OSP folks go there to serve dinner and to spend time with GMHC clients. That's great. What's it like to be a part of a ministry that actively tries to cultivate the spiritual lives of LGBTQ people in an affirming way? So LGBTQ spirituality is just like everybody else's Catholic spirituality. I mean, we're not strange, we're not peculiar, but we are starting with LGBTQ Catholic experience, right? So what are our lives like? What are our loves? What are our desires? How did God create us? And we're we're willing to be honest about those issues and to talk about them openly. But in terms of what that spiritual component of our ministry looks like. Um, We have a monthly Bible study, a faith-sharing group. We have quarterly masses that allow LGBTQ people to come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to pray for our community. We have an annual retreat where we have a few dozen people who get together, usually on the Jersey Shore, just to share our stories, to see how God is working in our lives. We invite theologians to come by pretty often to give talks on theology, spirituality that, that relates to our lives. And we'll have occasionally, we'll pray the rosary, yeah, get together for important events within our community, things like that. What does that mean for you or for some of the people you know at Out at St. Paul's to kind of have that kind of place that's open and welcoming and where, if I can put it this way, your spirituality and your sexuality are integrated? You know, because I could imagine a lot of people who are a part of that ministry have had different kinds of experiences with the church probably a few bad ones along the way. You know, maybe the parish they grew up in wasn't welcoming or affirming, or they had a bad priest along the way who, you know, said something that felt really hurtful and condemnatory to them. Uh, So what's, what's just as someone on the ground and out at St. Paul's, like, how do, do, do people sigh relief when they show up? Can they believe that this exists? Like, what's what's that kind of reaction? Sure. So there's actually a wide variety of reactions. So we have some people who show up and visit our parish after decades of being away from the church, you know, and they they hear about a ministry like out at St. Paul's and they come back and they get involved in community for the first time in many, many years. It's something really, really exciting for them because they never imagined that it was possible for them to to have an integrated life, a life where They could be fully LGBTQ and have that dignity affirmed and recognized within a Catholic church, within a Catholic community. Some younger members, though, they come and, you know, this is just the church as they know it. So a lot of folks grew up in very, very affirming families, very affirming Catholic communities and parishes. So for them, it's not anything surprising. A lot of people, though, like you mentioned, have been really hurt by the church. And so, so much of our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation a ministry of healing, right? A a ministry of undoing so many of the, so much of the damage that the church can do, that the church's official teaching can do to people's lives. So 
Um, it's a process of learning. It's a process of discernment. And as you described it, it's a process of integration too. How do we bring this gift of being LGBTQ into our faith, into our church? And how do we live it out in a loving community together? About how many people are part of this ministry? So it depends. We've got about five or 600 people on our email list. And then events, you know, just depends. So at our monthly faith sharing group, we might have 10 or 15 people. On our yearly retreat, we have about 70 or 80 people. A Sunday night meeting where a theologian comes to speak, we might have 30, 40, 50 people show up. And is it a pretty wide range of people, meaning age, gender, and so on? So age-wise, yeah, we're a really well-integrated community. We've got a lot of young folks, a lot of older folks, and everybody in between. In terms of gender, we're overwhelmingly gay, overwhelmingly men. There are only a few lesbians who are involved, and for them, it's, it's a real challenge um, because the church is a patriarchy led by men. They do tend to suffer quite a bit. They don't feel like they're heard. They're not represented up in the pulpit, you know, um, in, in church leadership. So we only have a few lesbians, and again, for them, it's a struggle. And unfortunately, they they do a lot of work educating the rest of us about women's needs within the Catholic Church. Yeah, I was going to ask how much a ministry like Out at St. Paul's kind of becomes a gathering place for all kinds of people who are feel on the margins of the church somehow. Has it kind of been a place where conversations about all kinds of inequities or injustices in the church get raised? Well, the last few years, the ministry has really focused on addressing those issues. You know, so talking about issues of race, talking about issues of income disparities, things like that, because we do have an incredibly privileged, almost exclusively gay male community, you know, um, and in Hell's Kitchen, again, that's more the majority than probably anywhere else in the country, not the world. So it it is really important for us to be addressing these things, to thinking about trans issues and how we can be better advocates for our trans siblings, you know, within the Catholic Church, recognizing that even as same-sex marriage has become more and more accepted within our society, trans folks are suffering a lot more. And, and within our church, it's almost as if the trans community has become a new target. So we are having these conversations that begin with educating ourselves, learning about what are the needs of communities that are suffering even more than we are, thinking about women, you know, people of color, trans folks. How do we educate ourselves and then how do we take action together? Yeah, because you're a theologian yourself. <laughs> and I'm interested in how I think you put it something like a ministry like out at St. Paul's can be a space for reflection, kind of in the sense of as the church tries to move forward somehow and continues to wrestle with LGBTQ issues. And so I was just wondering how the work you all are doing it out at St. Paul's might feed back into the life of the church and be a part of the collective deliberations the church seems like it'll be undergoing in the in the years ahead on some of these issues. Like almost as a resource for a church, for the church, really. Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, the church hasn't honestly considered or reflected on LGBTQ experience really ever in its official teaching. If you ask any LGBTQ person, they'll say, Church's teaching has very little to do with me or how I understand or live my life. Really, a lot of church leaders have turned their faces away from where we understand, where we see God working in our lives and in our loves, quite frankly. 
And unfortunately, there's a huge division between church leadership and institutional church teaching and grassroots parishes, you know, grassroots Catholic lives. And this isn't just an LGBTQ thing. I mean, this this comes up when we talk about contraception in the church and everything. Um, the huge gulf that exists between church's ideals and teachings, some of which are based in, you know, 13th century anthropologies and, and again, don't reflect anything of the lives that we live today. So I believe that LGBTQ Catholic ministry, my experience without it, St. Paul's shows me that our community, which is in the life of the church, you know, we're a part and parcel of our parish, can be a site of important ongoing reflection of this very badly needed dialogue within our Catholic church about who LGBTQ people are, about how God shows up in our lives and, and in our loves. Yeah, so I see communities like out at St. Paul's as being a really, really valuable resource to bridge the gap between academic theology, which is what I do, the local church at the parish level, but then also church leadership, right? That sometimes are doing their own thing. That's wonderful. Yeah, it is exciting and God is working in incredible ways. I think so too. So again, you want to check out Jason's piece on out at St. Paul's in the parish issue. And thank you, Jason, for uh, spending some time with us. Great. Thanks so much, Matt. Maybe you remember being bored and restless at Mass as a kid. Or maybe you're a parent who's had to try to keep your own bored and restless kids quiet at Mass. It's hard. Just ask Molly Wilson O'Reilly. She's the mother of four boys under the age of nine, whom she dutifully brings to Mass in her suburban parish every week. Some parishes can be less than welcoming for families with small children. Thankfully, Molly says, that's not the case for her. Even so, she's got a few suggestions for how parishes can ensure that the next generation of Catholics feel welcome and at home in a changing church. I just thought maybe you could explain why you lit upon the main idea you did, which was that if you want to make Mass more friendly for families with children, the homilies should be really short. Right. I have read an awful lot of uh, what I call the complaint tradition of, you know, little kids at Mass, pro and con. I didn't feel like I had anything original to contribute to that body of work. I read, you know, a lot of things that fall into that category of, you know, 10 things you should never say to a young parent at church or, or whatever. And a lot of it rings true, but I, my experience has also been that every circumstance is different, every parish is different, and also it's more of a two-way street than I think those conversations tend to allow, that older parishioners or childless parishioners or pastors can be kind of cranky about the, the obvious disruptiveness that comes with little children, but also families need to take responsibility for the fact that kids can be very distracting and it's not wrong for people to be frustrated by that. And so we all have to kind of work together. And so I thought I can keep chasing that subject around, but I don't think I need to contribute to that. And my experience, honestly, has really been very positive. I mean, we, we settled in the parish we're in, in part because that was the case. You know, by the time we got to our current parish, we had a one-year-old and I've another one on the way. And we knew that we needed to be in a place that was going to be friendly to little children. It's not a parish that has a children's mass, you know, or that, that does anything over the top. That the, the kids don't come up and stand around the altar at a typical Sunday mass or anything like that. But it was a parish where we saw young families and where we saw a lot of older people who were just obviously happy that we were there. And still, you know, every Sunday, 
unless one of my kids has been particularly horrifying, someone will come up to us and say, oh, you have such a beautiful family. Oh, we're so happy when we see you here. I get people recognize me in the grocery store. You know, oh, I, I d- almost didn't know you without your kids, they'll say. <laughs> it makes me realize how little attention I'm paying to anything but my kids when I'm at Mass because I, I usually don't recognize them at all. But we definitely make a scene, you know, but our, our parish is a place where there is a sense of like people recognize that the church needs young families. It can't just be retirees at mass every week. And the topic of the homily felt to me sort of universal, like in a parish that's friendly to kids in a parish that's hostile to kids, basically any parish except one that for whatever reason, doesn't tend to have kids or doesn't want or need to have young families like a a university parish or something like that. It could only be an improvement for those people to, to try a shorter homily. And I also think it's something that's not obvious to priests, to people who aren't sitting next to a toddler or a preschooler. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and how, how long did you say these uh, homilies should be? What do you mean by short? My target is five minutes. I think, I think six, you know, six is reasonable. And the, that doesn't seem radical to me. I do think it's about half as long as priests tend to be shooting for. I don't know what kind of advice priests are getting, but it feels to me very often like the main advice they get is that they should talk for 10 minutes. Not that they should prepare 10 minutes worth of, of insight, but they should, <laughs> right. they should keep an eye on the clock. And if they've made their point and there's still six minutes left, then they need to vamp because that's what I feel like I'm getting. And so maybe it's just that I'm an editor, but I, I my constant experience of mass is of sitting there thinking like, you can stop now. Like you've made your point. I know from being a person who tries to write opinion pieces that it it can be hard to express, you know, a thought that's worth listening to. And priests have a lot of other things to do besides crafting their homilies. But even if you have difficulty coming up with something, something profound or something worthwhile to say, even if it's hard to zero in on the perfect insight for your parishioners, it can only help if you're shooting to give them five minutes worth than if you feel like you have to give them 10 to 12 to 15. If you say something profound, you'll probably just say one profound thing. And this is, of course, another thing where every parish is different. And some, you know, everybody has their own complaints about homilies and how they could be better. But I'm kind of stepping outside of the question of the quality of a homily or of the preaching and the insight and just looking at the experience just of sitting there with small children. Even the best homily is. My, my kids aren't going to last more than five minutes and little, little children in general. Cause I, and I also, I don't want to sound like I'm picking on my parish or my pastor. I mean, again, in addition to looking for a parish that was friendly to children, we also wanted to look for one where the homilies tended to be pretty good. Even so after a certain amount of time, my attention is completely on what can I do to keep my kids relatively still and quiet until this is over. And so that's not doing anybody any good. This is my my radical proposal. I think it's it's inexpensive and it would be easy to implement. And I, I think maybe everybody, but certainly the people who have young children next to or around them would come out better. Because it is, I sometimes feel like it's like an hourglass and I can actually watch it disappearing, the, my, my kids' <laughs> ability to be still and quiet. Like they only really have about 35 minutes worth of that in them. And when the homily is taking up, too much of it, then at exactly the moment when you most want them to be still and quiet, 
they're completely done. They're, they're under the pews and they're, you know, and so many times through that second part of the mass, when everybody is as still and quiet as they can be, I, I find myself, you know, hissing at my children. Sit still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But they've I, done I that. They're done sitting still. And I've, I've seen homilies, I've seen my pastor in particular give homilies that my kids really listened to and understood. And that's a real gift. But even so, it has to be short. And I've also seen priests get up at, at masses for the school. So, you know, the, the whole congregation with you know, a few parents and teachers, the whole congregation is kids. And they still go on too long and, they, and they're over their heads. But even if you're not talking to the kids, even if you accept that like there are kids here and they're not going to get anything out of what I'm saying, you know, I don't expect the mass to be tailored to children. I even think it's a mistake to work too hard to tailor the mass to children. But for the sake of the adults who are with them, my proposal is, is shorter homilies. <laughs> You circled back to the question of like, well, what are we doing this for? Why bother with the hassle, the the aggravation, the frustration of of you know showing up every week with your boys in tow? Yeah, I mean, I think about it, you know, every every week, and then several times probably during the hour that I'm there. Why why are we doing this? I think with or without kids, I go back to feeling like showing up is the point. We show up because. We have to show up regardless of the quality of the liturgy. Not that those things aren't important. I think they're of paramount importance, but I think the showing up is the most important thing. And I'm very inspired by and dedicated to the idea of the liturgy, of the mass as you know, the work of the people, that, it, that it's an act of the community and it is the gathering of the community together as itself holy and as in itself manifesting the presence of Christ. So bringing my kids feels important because I want them to experience that. And I want them to be part of that, literally to be part of that body of Christ, even when they're too young to really understand what that means, what it means to do that. And I think, you know, maybe I'm, I'm sentimentalizing it too much, but I think that's a big part of what's motivating the kind of welcome that I see from the older people or the other parents that will approach me after mass or will be kind to my children and play peekaboo with them when they're getting restless and all of that, that it's, it isn't just that they like kids, but it's that they really recognize that there's value in us all being here together. For me, I know the mass feels like much more of a worthwhile use of my time. If I think of it as something that all of us in this place have gathered to accomplish together instead of something that I need to check off and you need to check off and we just happen to be doing it in a convenient time and place near each other. And especially right now at this time of, you know, isolation at home when we can't go, you know, we, we live stream the mass in our living room last week from my parish, which was, I was, it was lovely that we got to do that. And it certainly took a lot of the pressure off of needing to keep the kids still, you know, I was (laughs) able to let the Uh two-year-old run around and, and the older ones focused and all of that. But we missed the people around us because that is such a, a, a that's the reason we go and to make the effort to to become community for that hour so that's what i i really come back to and and i think any attempt to talk about how can we welcome kids at mass how can we make mass more welcoming for young families or how can we convince parents that they need to do a better job keeping their kids quiet all of that needs to come back to well why do we want to do that because we are working together as a community to accomplish this. And so if it's about, 
how can we best pray as one body? How can we make ourselves less of a distraction to each other or more of a support to each other? That that's the right framework to look at this question. In. Thank you again. I'm just grateful you took the time to talk with us this morning. Of course. I'm so happy to do it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. And so we hope you've enjoyed these special episodes on the American Parish, and we hope it inspires conversation. We want to hear from you, so feel free to send us an email. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, of course, if you haven't gotten your hands on the print edition of our April Parish issue, you should. It's worth spending time lingering over, especially the vibrant photographs of St. Joseph's Parish in Amarillo, Texas, which were shot by Bill McCullough. And now you can also download an illustrated PDF of the most significant demographic changes in the American Catholic Church as well. Just go to our website and you can download it for free. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Commonweal Podcast. I'm Dominic Preziosi. See you next time. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>